0: We were four guys. I met Paul, said, do you want to join me band? You know. And then George joined, and then Ringo joined. We were just a band who made it very, very big. That's all. And that, of course, is John Lennon, and somewhere else he just comes around and says, it's not like we were anybody important, and one of the I guess most important moments in, in high school for me was when The Beatles Anthology, that documentary series, was broadcast on TV. And a few months ago, I came across a copy of the huge hardback companion to that series, 10 by 13 inches. It is the coffee table, not just a coffee table book, uh, for a dollar. And I just started looking through it. And I realized that the first 20 pages or so are just a scattering of quotations. This is something I would do, uh, is what it struck me as, a scattering of quotations from all four of the Beatles, just talking about their upbringing, uh, about their lives before, it looks like, before uh, John, Paul, and George went off to Hamburg, and uh, and Ringo up until that time, although he wasn't in the Beatles yet, just talking about their upbringings. And I thought, who else born in the last century would be given this gift of a 10 by 13, you know, 500 page hardback book, which is filled with illustrations, notebook, sketches, uh, photographs, uh, collage of stuff. Um, Is there anybody that we can think of? It would have to be probably a movie star or another musician, maybe a... Perhaps a politician could do this. Um, And in the past, uh, I've looked at this kind of situation and been like, why is this the story that is allowed to be told in a 10 by 13 hardback? What stories aren't being told because all of this production value, for instance, is being put into the Beatles? But in this case, with this huge book, I think it fits quite wonderfully, because usually, as usual, with... The episodes that I do on "quote unquote" advice—it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's just a—it's um, just a collection of ways that people have lived, the things that they remember, the things that got them to the point where they're the public people that we know now. And so I thought it would be fun for the next hour or so to just look at my favorites from those quotations from John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and just see what they say, and just imagine what our equivalents of this would be, or indeed, how many people living in Liverpool at the time, or in London, or anywhere in England, would have had slightly similar, uh, but also perhaps slightly different versions of all of these memories. And you'll forgive me. You'll probably hear the page turning more than you usually do in this episode, Uh, again because the book is so large. And we'll start with what uh, John Lennon has to say, he was born in October of 1940. He says, My mother and father split when I was four, and I lived with an auntie, Mimi. Mimi told me my parents had fallen out of love. She never said anything directly against my father and mother. I soon forgot my father. It was like he was dead. But I did see my mother now and again, and my feeling never died off for her. I often thought about her, though I'd never realized for a long time that she was living no more than five or ten miles away." And he says, The worst pain is that of not being wanted, of realizing your parents do not need you in the way you need them. When I was a child, I experienced moments of not wanting to see the ugliness. Not wanting to not wanting to see not being wanted. This lack of love went into my eyes and into my mind. I was never really wanted. The only reason I am a star is because of my repression. Nothing would have driven me through all that if I was, quote, normal. And it's worth noting here that uh, all of John Lennon's quotes, of course, end in 1980, when he was, uh, when, just after he had turned 30 years old. That's incredible. And, of course, the other three Beatles, um, this went on, uh, their quotations go on until they're in their 50s. So John Lennon's quotations here are much closer to youth the whole way through. And I think that says something as well. Later on he says, Penny Lane is a suburban district where I lived with my mother and father, although my father was a sailor always at sea, and my grandfather. I lived on a street called Newcastle Road. That's the first place I remember. It's a good way to start. Red brick, front room never used, always curtains drawn, picture of a horse and carriage on the wall. There were only three bedrooms upstairs, one on the front of the street one in the back, and one teeny-tiny little room in the middle. And he says, There were two famous houses in Woolton. One was owned by Gladstone, a reformatory for boys, which I could see out my window, and Strawberry Field, just around the corner from that, an old Victorian house converted for Salvation Army orphans. Apparently, it used to be a farm that made strawberries. As a kid, I used to go to their garden parties with my friends, Ivan, Nigel, and Pete. We'd all go up there and hang out, and sell lemonade bottles. We always had fun at Strawberry Field. It isn't that nice. Just take any memory of your own. I'm thinking of how I grew up. I could walk through the backyard of the first house I lived in, uh, walk through the backyard, uh, go past a fence and up a hill, and I was at my grade school. Um, Just something like that, that could suddenly, if you happen to be John Lennon, uh, take on uh, world significance all of a sudden, this memory from childhood. He says, I was hip in kindergarten, I was different from others, I was different all my life. It's not a case of, then he took acid and woke up, or then he had a marijuana joint and woke up. Everything is as important as everything else. My influences are tremendous, from Lewis Carroll to Oscar Wilde to tough little kids that used to live near me who ended up in prison. It's that same problem I had when I was five. There is something wrong with me because I seem to see things other people don't see. He says All kids draw and write poetry and everything, and some of us last until we're about 18. But most drop off at about 12, when some guy comes up and says, you're no good. That's all we get told all our lives. You haven't got the ability. You're a cobbler. It happened to all of us. But if somebody had told me all my life, yeah, you're a great artist, I would have been a more secure person. They should give you time to develop, encourage what you're interested in. I was always interested in art and came top for many years, yet no one took any interest. I was always a rebel because of whatever sociological thing gave me a chip on the shoulder. But on the other hand, I wanted to be loved and accepted. That's why I'm on stage, like performing, like a performing flea, because I would like to belong. Part of me would like to be accepted by all facets of society and not be this loudmouth, lunatic, poet, musician. But I cannot be what I'm not. What the hell do you do? You want to belong, but you don't, because you cannot belong. He says, Liverpool is cosmopolitan. It's where all the sailors would come home, on the ships, with the blues records from America. We were hearing old, funky blues records in Liverpool, that people across Britain or Europe had never heard about or knew about only the port areas. There is the biggest country and western following in England in Liverpool besides London. I heard country and western music in Liverpool before I heard rock and roll. The people there, the Irish and Ireland, are the same. They take their music very seriously. They were established. There were established folk blues and country and western clubs in Liverpool before rock and roll. And he says, I'm an Elvis fan because it was Elvis who really got me out of Liverpool. Once I heard it and got into it, that was life. There was no other thing. I thought of nothing else but rock and roll, apart from sex and food and money. But that's all the same thing, really. Rock and roll was real. Everything else was unreal. It was the only thing to get through to me. It was the only thing to get through to me out of all the things that were happening when I was 15. And don't we all have that feeling every now and again? It was the only thing to get through to me out of all the things that were happening when I was 15. I had no idea about doing music as a way of life until rock and roll hit me. That's the music that inspired me to play music. And this is when he finally gets into his first uh, band, the Quarrymen. Uh, We eventually formed ourselves into a group from school. I think the bloke whose idea it was didn't get into the group. We met in his house the first time. There was Eric Griffiths on guitar, Pete Schotton on washboard, Len Gary, Colin Hanton on drums, and Rod Davis on banjo, and somebody named Ivan Vaughn. Ivan went to the same school as Paul. Our first appearance was in Roseberry Street. It was on their Empire Day celebrations. They had this party out in the street, and we played from the back of a lorry. We didn't get paid. We played at blokes parties after that, perhaps got a few bob, but mostly we just played for fun. We didn't mind about not being paid. The Quarrymen is the name of the group before it turned into The Beatles. The original group was named after my school, which was quarry bank, and had a Latin motto which meant, out of this rock. That's symbolic, out of this rock you will find truth. And he says, It was through Ivan that I first met Paul. Seems that he knew Paul was always dickering around in music, and thought he would be a good lad to have in the group. So one day, when we were playing at Woolton, he brought him along. We can both remember it quite well. The quarry men were playing on a raised platform, and there was a good crowd, because it was a warm, sunny day. What a a fly-on-the-wall kind of memory that must have been, uh, to have just seen that happen on that warm, sunny day. And he says, we asked George to join us because he knew more chords, a lot more than we knew. We got a lot from him. Paul had a friend at school who would discover chords, and these would be passed around Liverpool, Every time we learned a new chord, we would write a song around it." And here he is talking about, uh, talking about his mother, when his mother died. It says, She got killed by an off-duty cop who was drunk after visiting my auntie's house where I lived. I wasn't there at the time. She was at the bus stop, and he ran her down in his car. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me. We'd caught up so much, me and Julie, in just a few years. We could communicate. We got on. She was great. And I thought, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. That's really fucked everything. I have no responsibilities to anyone now. Twitchy, that's uh, his mother's second husband or just boyfriend, Uh, Twitchy took it worse than me. Then he said, who's going to look after the kids? And I hated him. Bloody selfishness. We got a taxi over to Sefton General where she was lying dead. I didn't want to see her. I talked hysterically to the taxi driver all the way, ranted on and on, the way you do. The taxi driver just grunted now and again. I refused to go in, but Twitchy did. He broke down. It helps to say, my mummy's dead, rather than, my mother died, or, my mother wasn't very good to me. A lot of us have images of parents that we never get from them. It doesn't exercise it, bang, gone, but it helps. First of all, you have to allow yourself to realize it. I never allowed myself to realize that my mother had gone. It's the same if you don't allow yourself to cry or feel anything. Some things are too painful to allow yourself to cry. Some things are too painful to feel, so you stop. We have the ability to block feelings, and that's what we do most of the time. These feelings are now coming out of me, feelings that have been there all my life, and they continue to come out. I don't know if every time I pick up a guitar I'm going to sing about my mother. I presume it'll come out some other way now. All art is pain expressing itself. I think all life is, everything we do, but particularly artists. That's why they're always vilified. They're always persecuted because they show pain. They can't help it. They express it in art and the way they live, and people don't like to see that reality that they're suffering. When you're a child, you can only take so much pain. Now would you have thought that from the Beatles? Um, because they show pain, and that's why artists are vilified, because they show pain. I would not have thought that from the Beatles, but you can see all of that behind the things that they do uh, later on. He says this, I had a friend who was a blues freak. He turned me on to the blues. He was the same age as me and he understood rock and roll. He knew what Elvis, Fats Domino and Little Richard were all about. But he said, how about this? It didn't take my love of rock and roll away and it added the real blues to my consciousness. The blues is real. It's not perverted. It's not thought about. It's not a concept. It's a chair not a design for a chair or a better chair or a bigger chair or a chair with leather or with design. It's the first chair, chairs for sitting on, not chairs for looking at or being appreciated. You sit on that music. That might be my favorite thing in this. The Chad Lennon says you sit on that music talking about the blues, uh, what it is. It is a thing that is there. Um, yeah, that's, it, it is a solid thing that uh, nobody's fucked with yet it is just right there and you can sit on it if you'd like um, and these last two quotations from, uh, from John Lennon I think sometimes of the friends who left school at the same time as me when I made up my mind to go to art school some of them went straight to nine to five jobs and within three months they looked like old men a fat chance of that ever happening to me The great thing is never having to be in an office, or anywhere. I like to live on the spur of the moment. I hate to make forward plans. Who knows why the Beatles happened? It's like the constant search for why you go down one road and why you go down another. It has as much to do with being from Liverpool, or being from Quarry Bank Grammar School, or being in a household where the library was full of Oscar Wilde and Whistler and Fitzgerald, and all of the Book of the Month Club. And that, I think, is something that all of them say, and Lennon cited earlier. It's not just the quote-unquote culture that makes something like the Beatles. It's everything. It is all the details of their lives, and that's what most of this stuff is. I think you'll see here, too, that uh, just by the quotations that I read from John Lennon and the ones that I'm about to read from Paul McCartney, Um, and the rest, is that he doesn't mention doing very much with his family or with his friends, whereas Paul McCartney, as you're about to hear, seems to have just had a larger world to draw from. And he was born in June of 1942. This is what Paul McCartney has to say. My mother was a midwife, and we were always given the midwife's house whenever she worked. We always felt like a pioneer family in a wagon train. No sooner could we be established in one house than we would be moved to a new one on the outskirts of Speak, say, where they hadn't built the roads yet. We'd live there for a while, and then it would be whip-crack-away, and we were moving again. It was all right. We adjusted. They were frontiers, the outskirts of Liverpool, where we were sent. And he says... As a child, Liverpool was trams. You'd get to the end of a tram route, and the driver would go to the controls at the other end and drive back. Reminders of the war were all around. We played on bomb sites a lot, and I grew up thinking the word bombsite almost meant playground. I never connected it with bombing. Where are you going to play? I'm going down to the bombie. We said words like shell shock never realizing their true significance. There used to be a guy in a demob suit who walked along twitching. People would ask, what's wrong with him? Oh, shell shock. And it's nice uh, throughout the uh, the rest of these interviews to remember that the Beatles are a product of the Second World War. And here's a nice memory he has of a, of his father and his family. Paul McCartney says, my dad was an instinctive musician. He would played trumpet in a little jazz band when he was younger. I unearthed a photo of him in the sixties, which someone in the family had given me. And there he is in front of a big bass drum. And that gave us the idea for Sergeant Pepper. You remember the cover, Sergeant Pepper, everybody uh, standing around the big bass drum. He says, "Uh, dad told me learn the piano because you'll always get invited to parties. He'd always play on New Year's Eve. Our family always had big New Year's Eve parties. They were some of the best parties I ever remember, because everybody got together. When I used to talk to John about his childhood, I realized that mine was so much warmer. I think that's why I grew up to be so open about sentimentality in particular. I really don't mind being sentimental. I know a lot of people look on it as uncool. I see it as a pretty valuable asset. And of course, you remember uh, Paul McCartney's uh, uh, What's So Bad About Silly Love Songs? And then John Lennon talking about uh, working-class heroes. Uh, You're still fucking peasants to me. I mean, it's right there. The difference between the two when they're not writing songs for the same band. But Paul McCartney's mother died when he was a teenager as well, just like John Lennon's mother did. And Paul McCartney says, uh, My mum dying when I was 14 was the big shock in my teenage years. She died of cancer, I learned later, I didn't know then why she had died. That became a very big bond between John and me, because he lost his mum early on too. We both had this emotional turmoil, which we had to deal with, and being teenagers, we had to deal with it very quickly. We both understood that something had happened that you couldn't talk about, but we could laugh about it, because each of us had gone through it. It was okay for him to laugh at it, and okay for me to laugh at it. It wasn't okay for anyone else. We could both, we could both laugh at death, but only on the surface. John went through hell, but young people don't show grief, they'd rather not. Occasionally, once or twice in later years, it would hit. It would hit in. We'd be sitting around, and we'd have to cry together. Not often, but it was good. This is sort of what I mean. How many kids in Liverpool uh, had their mother die of cancer when they were teenagers, or an auto accident like John Lennon's mother? That seems to be the real price of fame, is that uh, on the one hand, you can be jealous and say, damn it, my mother died when I was a teenager, too. Nobody is putting her in any books, no one is putting her photo in any books, Um, she is not remembered in story and song. But on the other hand, um, I can see what fame allows for, which is that uh, it can be dangerous but also helpful in a way, that that the loss of John and Paul early in their lives can be a symbol for everyone who was lost. Uh, their mother or parent or just someone they love. And you sort of share in that experience, um, not necessarily with the performer, but with other people who have also lost. Um, And that's a tricky place to be. Here we are. Here is Paul's version of meeting uh, John Lennon. He says, It was the 6th of July, 1957. We were 15 years old. I remember coming into the fete. There was the coconut shy over here and the hoopla over there, all the usual things. And there was a band playing on a platform with a small audience in front of them. We headed for the stage first because as teenagers we were interested in music. There was a guy up on the platform with curly blondish hair, wearing a checked shirt, looking pretty good and quite fashionable, singing a song that I loved, the Dell Vikings. Come, go with me. He didn't know the words, but it didn't matter because none of us knew the words either. There is a little refrain which goes, "Come, little darling, come and go with me. I love you, darling." John was singing down, down, down to the penitentiary. Uh, he was filling in he was filling it in with blues lines. I thought that that was good, and he was singing well. There was a skiffle group around him, tea-chest bass, drums, banjo quite a higgledy-piggledy lot. They were called the Quarry men because John went to the Quarry Bank School and I quite liked them. And what I quite like actually about all these interviews is that you get to hear uh, the names of bands that uh, you don't hear about anymore, such as the Dell Vikings or these uh, uh, some of the blue stuff, some of these old, um, some of these old songs that they know the lyrics of and they still know them, and just the idea of a skiffle group. Uh, will not be forgotten, in part because the Beatles began sort of halfway as that. But here Paul meets George and and Paul says this, uh, George was a bus stop away. I would get on the bus for school and he would get on the stop after. And so being close to each other in age, we talked, although I tend to talk down to him because he was a year younger. I know that that was a failing I had all the way through the Beatle years. If you've known a guy when he's 13 and you're 14, it's hard to think of him as grown up. I still think of George as a young kid. I still think of Ringo as a very old person, because he was two years older. He was the grown-up in the group. When he came to us, he had a beard, he had a car, he had a suit. What more proof do you need of grown-upsmanship? And he says but it was music that I loved there have been times when I've been feeling down and then I've heard a particular song and it has lifted me me and my teenage mate Ian James both had a, had fleck jackets with a little flap on the breast pocket and we'd knock around the fairgrounds in places if we were feeling lousy if we were feeling lousy we'd go back and play an Elvis 78 like don't be cruel and we'd be right up there again. It could cure any blues. And really, I mean, uh, isn't that anything? I've got a six hundred page uh, poetry anthology sitting next to me. W- what did those poems do for me? But what Paul McCartney just described and Elvis seventy eight doing? Um, it clues you in. It uh, offers you an amount of sympathy. It entertains you. It makes you smile or laugh or cry. Um, It could cure any blues by connecting you with something that isn't you. And Paul says this, uh, when we weren't playing parties or talent contests, we would listen to other guys on the guitar, and it became a quest to find chords and records. It was like looking for the Holy Grail we would hear of some guy in Fazalarke. Was that a long way away? It was, of course, in Liverpool, but it was like going across the world for us. But this guy knows B7. We must all go on a journey. So a little crowd of us would get on the bus there. It would be enough that he knew B7. We'd sit down, O oh guru. We hearest thou knowest B7, please show it to us. Certainly, kids. And then we go home, we hey, we know, E, A, and D, now let's get B7. We didn't know exactly how to do the last part of B7 for quite a while. And this is the last quotation from uh, Paul McCartney. He says, we did love me do, and I saw her standing there, and we got the basis of a partnership going, he and John Lennon, of writing these songs. One of us would come up with an idea, and then it would seesaw. So there was a mild competitiveness in that we were ricocheting off our ideas. Love Me Do was very much G and G7, C and D. Not too hard. The harmonica is a great bit. John was a good harmonica player. He had a chromatic note. He had a chromatic one, which is more like Stevie Wonder's. It was a little square, so he had to learn how to get the blues sounds out of it. We were learning our skill. John would like some of my lines and not others. He liked most of what I did, but there would sometimes be a cringe line, such as, she was just 17, she had never been a beauty queen, and John thought beauty queen, ugh. We were thinking of Butland's, so we asked ourselves, what should it be? We came up with, you know what I mean, which was good, because you don't know what I mean. And now we're in George Harrison. I have to admit, uh, George has always been my favorite. And um, perhaps that bias was sitting in my mind. But when I came to his his collection of quotations, uh, the things he said uh, were my favorite. I've always just been attached uh, to George Harrison and his story. He was born in February of 1943. And how about this? Um, Have you heard this? Uh, about any other famous person that you have admired since you were a teenager. He says, my earliest recollection is of sitting on a pot at the top of the stairs, having a poop, shouting, finished. Another very early memory is as a baby of a party in the street, there were air raid shelters and people were sitting around tables and benches. I must've been no more than two. We used to have a photograph of me there. So it's probably only because I could relive the scene when I was younger, through the photograph, that I even remember it. And right there you just get uh, George going back into his mind. The only reason he remembers it is because of the photograph, not because he actually does remember it. He says, I have memories of being taken around by my mother when she went shopping on Saturdays. I used to be dragged around seeing old ladies, whom she always seemed to know and had to visit. They probably weren't that old, but when your child, anyone over 20, seems old. And there were news theaters, cinemas and little period buildings that would show cartoons and the Pathé Pictorial News. They wouldn't have any main features and a show would be about 50 minutes long. So, you could go do your shopping, and then you got tired, you could go have a coffee, Go to the news theater, watch a few cartoons, then go and continue shopping. This is part of the other thing that I mean, is that you could find a version of that in so many places, just the vanished world of uh, late 40s, early 50s in an English town, shopping, going to see the Pathé Pictorial News. This is a thing that will never occur again in quite that way, but the place that we have it, the place that was... Most readily accessible to me to find was in this book about the Beatles, and he says uh, we were just a stone's throw away from witness. I used to go there all the time down to the Oglet, the shoreline of the river. The tide would go out miles, and the riverbed would be all mud. People would go up and down. People would go up and down it on motorbikes, and I would walk for hours along the mud cliffs of the Mersey and through farm fields and woods. I liked it outdoors." And that reminds me of uh, of Van Gogh doing the same thing, or of just the image that this whole thing conjures up of just anyone walking along these muddy cliffs back then and just looking down and seeing this kid there and having really no idea what it was this kid would one day uh, end up doing. And here's George's memories of early music. He says, I remember as a child, listening to the records that my parents had, all the English music, all the English music hall music. We had one record call, called, called Shenanigi, Shenanagy, Shenanagy Da. Old Shenanagy Da, he plays his guitar, but the hole in the middle was off center. But the hole in the middle of the record was off center so it sounded a little weird, brilliant. There was another one called Fire, 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 Fire. And it went, Why do all the engines chuff, chuff? It's a fire, 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 fire. It had loads of verses, with sound effects of fire engines, and crowds gasping, and people trapped up in some building. It was a double-sided 78. And when it ran out on one side, it said, Eh, turn me over, lads, and I'll play you some more." And when you turned it over, it went back to the refrain and another 20 verses. I don't understand people who say, I only like rock and roll or I only like the blues or whatever. Even Eric Clapton says he was influenced by the runaway train went over the hill. As I said in my own book, my earliest musical memories are things like One Meatball by Josh White and those Hoagy Carmichael songs and others like it. I would say that even the crap music that we hated, that late 40s, early 50s, American smaltz records like The Railroad Runs Through the Middle of the House, or the British I'm a Pink Toothbrush, You're a Blue Toothbrush, even that has had some kind of influence on us, whether we like it or not. All that is in me somehow, all that is in me somehow, and is capable of coming out at any point. It shows up in the comic aspect of some of our songs, like the middle of Yellow Submarine. And he says, you can hear something and think that you don't like it and think that it's not influencing you. But you are what you eat. You are what you see, what you touch, what you smell, what you hear. Music has always had a transcendental quality inasmuch as it reaches part of you that you don't expect it to reach and it can touch you in a way that you can't express. You can think that it hasn't reached you, and years later you'll find it coming out. I think, as Beatles, we were fortunate that we were open to all kinds of music. We just listened to whatever happened to be on the radio. That was the main thing in those days. And he says this. My dad had played a guitar when he was in the merchant navy, But when there was no work, he gave up being a seaman and sold it. When I started playing, he said, I had a friend who plays, and somehow he still knew him, and he phoned him up. His name was Len Houghton, and he had an off-license that he lived above. On Thursdays, he would be closed, so my dad arranged for me to go down there each week on that night for two or three hours. He'd show me new chords and play songs to me, like Dinah, and Sweet Sue and Django Reinhardt or Stefan Grappelli sorts of tunes, songs of 20s or 30s like Whispering, it was a very good of him. And so even though I'm down on the idea that rock and roll can possibly mean anything, uh, like what it meant to the Beatles when they were coming up, it's hard also to not believe that somewhere out there in America or in Britain or anywhere else really, uh, there is a... Uh, A guy or a girl whose dad used to have a guitar and got rid of it and they don't have enough money to just buy one and suddenly someone in the family remembers, I knew someone who used to play guitar, here you can go and learn from them. Um, There are these small things going on all the time, that quote from Patti Smith that I liked where she was asked, uh, what are the new bands that she really likes? And her response was, "Uh, the new bands that I really like are the ones I have not heard yet there are the ones that nobody has heard of yet they're still in their garage they're still in their basement so something like this must still be going on but but i would imagine it's harder to do what george harrison is talking about to be open to so many different things when everything is so tribal and demarcated and separated off these days especially if you get a hold of Uh, A smartphone and uh, a music service and suddenly you're sort of uh, backed into a corner of genre or something like that but here is George Harrison talking about uh, meeting Paul McCartney so Paul and I used to be on the same bus in the same school uniform traveling home from the Liverpool Institute I discovered that he had a trumpet and he found out that I had a guitar and when we got together, and then we got together. I was about 13. He was probably late 13 or 14. He was always nine months older than me. And even now, after all these years, he's still nine months older. And of course, Paul McCartney said the same thing. Uh, You cannot get past how much older you are than other people. He says, uh, George Harrison does, I remember once how I'd got the money and I wanted Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley, and I'd asked somebody in the family to get it for me. I couldn't wait to get that record. They came home and they gave me a record and said, oh, they sold out of Bill Haley, so I got you this one. And it was the Deep River Boys, and I thought, oh no, fucking hell, it was such a disappointment. That was the first record I didn't get. I've learned in my life that you mustn't disappoint people who are counting on you. I remember my mother going uh, to Best Buy when I was in high school, uh, stopping at Best Buy on the way home from her job as a grade school teacher, and getting me the new Pearl Jam record, and I guess that would have been the equivalent if she had come home with something other uh, than Pearl Jam. And this is a nice memory of George Harrison going to see Eddie Cochran uh, as a teenager. He says, I saw quite a few shows, the best being the Eddie Cochran one. This was a couple of years later. He was backed up by an English band, and I remember Eddie Cochran well. He had his black leather waistcoat, black leather trousers, and a raspberry-colored shirt. He came on doing What I'd Say, and as the curtains opened, he had his back to the audience playing the riff. I was watching his fingers to see how he played. There was a funny break in between songs, and he was standing at the microphone, and as he started to talk, He put his two hands through his hair, pushing it back, and a girl, one lone voice, screamed out, oh, Eddie, and he coolly murmured into the mic, hi, honey, and I thought, yes, that's it, rock and roll, and he says, when I was 13 or 14, I would sit at the back of the class and try to draw guitars, big cello guitars with F-holes and the little solid ones with cutaways. I was totally into all of that. I even tried to make a guitar, which was very bold. And in ignorance, you can do virtually anything. I love that. In ignorance, you can do virtually anything. If I knew what uh, what writing a long poem would have been like, or what the the work would go into it, or the reputation of it, or how nobody does it anymore, and the reasons nobody does it anymore, and why poetry isn't this and that anymore and all of this stuff if i had known all of that would i have still written to the house of the sun probably not but in ignorance you can do virtually anything and you at least give it your best shot here are two are these yeah two last ones from george harrison so george harrison is the youngest one john lennon is the oldest one so that while uh While uh, George and Paul are still in high school, John is at art college, and he helps get them into uh, some of the parties. Uh, George says, one art school party in Liverpool, in a flat in the students' accommodation, was the first all-night party I ever went to. It was was even designated an all-nighter, and the rules were that you had to bring a bottle of wine and an egg for your breakfast. So. We bought a cheap bottle of Plunk from Yates's Wine Lounge and put our eggs in the fridge when we arrived. The great thing about the party, and I'm sure John and Paul would agree, was that somebody had a copy of What I'd Say by Ray Charles, a 45 RPM with part two on the B-side. That record was played all night, probably eight or ten hours nonstop. It was one of the best records I ever heard. I puked up next morning. Cynthia was there. I believe that's the name of his first wife. Uh, Cynthia was there, and I remember saying drunkenly to her, I wish I had a nice girl like you. And I love that quote, not just for the Ray Charles bit, but also where they got the wine from. Yates's Wine Lounge. Um, Is it possible that the only reason anyone will ever know that Yates's Wine Lounge ever existed? is because of uh, a remark by George Harrison, Y-A-T-E-S. When I stop recording here, I'm gonna go and see if there's just a picture from old time Liverpool, maybe of Yates's wine lounge. And here is the last little bit from George Harrison. Uh, My dad never had a trade, but he had the idea that all his three sons would have different trades. My eldest brother was a mechanic. My second brother did panel beating and welding. So Dad thought, George can be an electrician, and then we can have our own garage. And For Christmas, Dad bought me a little kit that opened up, and inside were screwdrivers and tools, and I thought, oh God, he really does want me to be an electrician. That was depressing, because I had no chance of being one. And we'll hear a little bit more about family, a family reaction to being in a band, from what Ringo has to say about himself. Ringo is, uh, is the oldest one, is that right? Let me go back to John. By a few months, is that right? October 1940, July 1940, yeah, just by a month or two. But he was the first one to become truly uh, professional. And remember, he didn't uh, join the Beatles until after they got back. After they were playing for a while in Liverpool, went out to Hamburg to sort of uh, get better. And they came back to Liverpool, got rid of Pete Best, and, uh, and hired uh, Ringo Starr. And this is what Ringo has to say about himself. Um, I don't remember the war and all the bombs, although they did actually break Liverpool up a lot. Our neighborhood was really bombed. We had to hide a lot, I've been told since. We used to hide in the coal cellar. It was more like a cupboard. I remember big gaps in the streets where houses had stood. We used to play on the rubble when I was older and in the air raid shelters. And he says, Dad was a baker. I think that's how my parents met. He worked making cakes, so we always had sugar through the war. When I was three, he decided that was enough of that, and he left us. I was an only child, so from then it was just me and my mother until she remarried when I was 13. Mum didn't do much for a while. She was in a bit of pain after my dad left, and she ended up doing any down-home job she could get to feed and clothe me. She did everything. She was a barmaid. She scrubbed steps, worked in a food shop. And there's a famous photo of on this page that I'm sure you could just find if you Google uh, Ringo Starr as a child of uh, Ringo standing uh, in front of his mother holding an accordion and he's in a vest and a tie. And you can just see um, what you've just heard, the father leaving, the mother doing anything she can for him. You can just see the attachment there that is also informed by uh, the illnesses that Ringo had as a kid. And Ringo says, uh, whose name, by the way, of course, is George Starkey. Um, and he explains, I think that he used to wear rings a lot. People started calling him Ringo. And he just took the first syllable of his last name, Starkey, and made it Ringo Star. Um, but in any case, he says this. Granddad loved the horses, the GGs, as he said. He'd come in, and if the horses had lost... He'd be swearing and throwing the paper around, those bastard nags, blah blah, just like any other gambler. And Grandma would say, Johnny, not in front of the child. And he'd be saying, the bastards. It was pretty exciting for me. He had his chair, which he always sat in. He sat in his chair right through the war. He never went and hid anywhere, even though bricks were blowing out of his house. He just sat in his chair. So as a kid, I always wanted to sit in that chair he come in, and he would only point, and I'd have to move, but of course, because it was his, it was the only thing that I wanted. And there you are. I mean, the Beatles. Uh, who gives a shit about the Beatles? You have a memory like that, of your grandfather coming in and losing money on the horses, of your grandfather having his favorite chair in the house, and you remember that. You just remember that, and what it would mean to sit there. That was the only thing you wanted to do, and how he never got up even when the air raid sirens were going. I mean, the Beatles, the music is almost beside the point. Um, It's almost as if we have this record of them. Uh, The music existed so we could have this record of them, of these memories. Um, He says, Liverpool was dark and dreary, but it was great fun to be a kid. Davy Patterson, Brian Briscoe and me, we were the Three Musketeers. We were the Skull Gang and the Black Hand Gang this little gang of three. We were going to do everything together. We were detectives, we were cowboys, and we went to the same school. We were really close, up until 10 or 11. It was my world, and all those bomb sites were paradise. You didn't feel anything about the people who were bombed in them. It was just a big playground. I'll see you on the bomby, we used to say. And again, talking about how the music comes in from the people who've been out to sea, he says, because in every other house someone went to sea, and would bring all this crap back. The good thing about it was is that they were also bringing records and styles of clothes back. My first musical memory was when I was about eight, Jean Autry singing "South of the Border." That was the first time I really got the shivers down my backbone, as they say. He had his three compadres singing, "Ay, ay, ay, ay." And it was just a thrill to me. Gene Autry has been my hero ever since. And you could very easily just, couldn't you, just go to Spotify right now and make a playlist of all the songs that I've mentioned here. And you would have a very cool uh, introduction to what the Beatles heard when they were children. Um, More about rationing here. Again, more stuff about the war that you, you wouldn't otherwise associate with the Beatles this far away from them. It was a big day when rationing ended, but it wasn't as though we could suddenly go out and buy sweets or butter or eggs, because we had no money. In fact, wartime rationing didn't make any difference to poor people, because we were always rationed by economics anyway. I got lucky the first time I was in hospital, because they wanted me to eat anything, so I lived on new potatoes and butter. A dollop of butter was big news in those days. And Ringo says, Before I went to the hospital the second time, once I think when he was six and the second time when he was 13, uh, before I went the second time, walking to school I used to pass a little music store on Park Road. It had guitars, banjos, accordions, and mandolins in the window. But I used to look at the drums. There was one, a tom-tom, that used to freak me out, and every morning, walking to school, I would go and look at it, and walking back, I'd look at it again. It cost, it cost 26 pounds, which was a fortune. I was in the hospital band. I started using cotton bobbins to hit on the cabinet next to the bed. I was in bed for 10 months. It's a long time. So you keep yourself entertained. It was that and knitting. That's where I really started playing. I never wanted anything else from then on. Drums were the only thing I wanted. And when I came out, I used to look in music shops and see drums. That's all I'd look at. My grandparents gave me a mandolin and a banjo, but I didn't want them. My grandfather gave me a harmonica when I was seven. Nothing. We had a piano. Nothing. Only the drums. And there's the story of Paul McCartney uh, meeting George Harrison, and he's, I think I said he's doing the trumpet, and he suddenly, Paul McCartney, realizes, well, I can't sing, obviously, if I'm playing the trumpet, so he gets rid of that. Um, But it's nice here. I have never once in my life wanted to pick up the drums. But uh, he knew that was it from the beginning, Uh, Ringo did. He says, My first drum kit came on the scene at about this time. I bought a drum for 30 shillings. It was huge, one-sided bass drum. There used to be lots and lots of parties then. An uncle would play banjo or harmonica. My grandparents play the mandolin banjo. There was always someone playing something. So I would bang my big drum with two pieces of firewood and drive them mad. But because I was a kid, they would let me do it. They would say, oh yeah, and then just move me out. This is one of my favorite bits from Ringo. All of, none of them uh, enjoyed school. They all hated school. They all say, say as much. Um, I, I don't even think John Lennon liked uh, art college very much. Um, this is Ringo talking about uh, school. He says... I never went back to school after 13. I had to collect my sign-off papers one time, so that I could pick up the dole until they found me a job. I went to the school and said, excuse me, can I have the piece of paper to say that I'm actually 15, and that I was at this school? And they went through all their files, everything, and they said, you never came to this school. And I said, honestly, I came here. They found me in the end, but the fact is, they had no recollection of me ever being there. But then, seven or eight years later, when we'd made it in the Beatles, suddenly they had, quote, my desk at the school garden party, and they were charging people to sit in it. They wouldn't know my desk from anyone else's. I love that. Uh, Come sit in Ringo's desk, why don't you? And what do we have here? Uh, Two more from Ringo, and then we'll call it night. I hope this has been enjoyable. This has been... uh, Uh, a great deal of fun for me to do Um, and for a long time I've wanted to write a novel or some a fake oral history of a big event that never actually happened Um, and in the same way I would sort of like to just write about the lives of characters and the way that I've just been reading to you right now Um, but I guess the joy of this is that it can't quite be done in this way and that's why this book the first 20 or so pages of this book are so incredible because it is so hard to find otherwise and especially with somebody like the Beatles it's hard to find because the Beatles are all covered over with the 60s and everything that came after that Um, and here you get to imagine them before they were all of that and this is Ringo talking about uh, making the decision to uh, to join a band. At one point, he got a, quote, regular job, so he didn't have to be conscripted. And this is what he says. In 1959, the Army decided that anyone born later than September 1939 would not be conscripted, which includes him. Uh, I'd made it by 10 months, and that's when I thought, great, now we can play. And I left the factory and decided to go professional with Rory. Uh, Rory and the Hurricanes was the name of the band. Uh, we had a big family meeting, imagine this, we had a big family meeting when I asked to go with Rory and the band up to Butlands to play in the Rock and Calypso Ballroom for 16 pounds a week. Up until then I had been playing just at night or on some afternoons. And Ringo says, I come from a long line of laborers and soldiers, and I would have been the first in our line to get a piece of paper saying he was actually something. An engineer. That's the job they wanted him to get, an engineer. I remember my uncles, my aunties, and the boss of the factory saying, you'll come back in three months, and you'll only be semi-skilled when you do. But I said, I don't care. Drums are my life. I want to be a musician, and I'm going away with Rory the Butlins to fulfill this dream. You wonder if he said it quite that cogently uh, in the middle of this room with his parents and his uncles and his aunties. You can imagine his mother as well, an only child, uh, and he wants to go uh, up to Butlins to make 16 pounds a week playing the drums. Um, But that is what he did, um, which I did. I stopped work at 20. I've always believed I'd be playing drums. That was my dream, although through my life I've forgotten that dream occasionally and let substances take over. And then we come to the point where we have, in the other interviews, I believe that Ringo, who's touring uh, on the continent as well, with Rory and the Hurricanes, ends up in Germany at the same time that the Beatles, with, uh, with Pete Best and I think Pete Sutcliffe is the guy's name, are in Hamburg also playing. And as mentioned earlier, Ringo is known as sort of the professional musician among them but he's not a Beatle yet and this uh, last quote from Ringo is sort of on the verge of them all ending up in Germany and in a a year or so uh, uh, changing the world you might say when they come back. Uh, Ringo says this and I will say thank you for listening to this and uh, here we are Ringo. My apprenticeship with Rory and the Hurricanes We were real professional. We'd go away to play and come back to Liverpool. That's what I was doing while John, Paul, and George were still getting it together. We were going well. We were doing so well that when the first offer came to go to Hamburg, we turned it down. But in the autumn of 1960, we we eventually went to play in Germany. And that's when I met the Beatles. Whatever happened to those guys?